Are we live? We are. Well, we're going to have to start again. No, no. This is this 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 sort of thing the audience loves. <laughs> well, hello everyone, and welcome to this, the latest in Practico's costs chats between friends. For those of you who aren't familiar with the format, it's not so much a formal lecture on cost development, but a discussion led by our guest. Uh, in which the other two members of the, the group um, participate and offer their two penneth. T today, we are um, delighted to welcome as our guest, Ben Williams QC, who's not only uh, an old costs friend, but also a cost silk at the very top of his game. And uh, talking to him will be, as usual, Andy Ellis, the Managing Director of Practico, and myself, Jeremy Morgan, retired cost silk and consultant to Practico. Just a brief uh, housekeeping point. There will be an email summarizing the discussion and including case references or, and or links uh, sent out afterwards. So you don't need to take detailed notes if that's what you would otherwise be doing. The um, recording will also be available on YouTube and as a podcast on the usual sites. We're going to be discussing um, three areas in particular, and maybe one more if, uh, if time permits. The three areas we were thinking of discussing are guideline hourly rates to look at where we are in the light of last year's increases, um, a review of the situation in relation to damages-based agreements where no legislative um, changes have been made, but um, one or two other developments have taken place. And finally, um, a look at group litigation, particularly in the light of the Supreme Court's decision in Lloyd and Google. Um, just to show, though, and you'll forgive the pun, that there are no debts to which we will not sink. Um, I'm going to invite Ben in the course of the discussion, and I haven't warned him about this, to get in a, seamlessly a reference to Davy Jones's locker. Um, over to you then, Ben, on guideline hourly rates. Well, uh, good morning, um, and uh, thank you for inviting me again. It's lovely to see you both, um, and um, I hope uh, it's, it, um, it, it can be an informative um, discussion for uh, the masses who are awaiting on our words. So, yes, guideline hourly rates, I think that is a useful starting point, and I think um, the most interesting thing about guideline hourly rates really is, is, is the effect that last year's review um, has had in broadening or potentially broadening their application um, into areas where previously, um, if attention was paid to them at all, um, it was usually attention was paid only for the purposes of dismissing them, by which I really mean um, sort of quality commercial work, City of London work, um, or it's um, in the equivalent in the business districts of the other big cities. Um, because for years, really, guideline rates, as we know, they haven't been updated since 2010, uh, even before the recent uh, sort of post-COVID and Ukraine inflation. I mean, between 2010 and, and 2020, um, I think inflation, um, depending on how you measured it, RPI or CPI, had gone up to 20 to 30 percent. So they were long outdated. Um, um, and the only areas really where they seem to be applied uh, um, quite frequently was in the context of routine county court litigation, particularly personal injury litigation. Um, and for years, the personal injury uh, um, uh, um, practitioners understandably pointed out, well, you know, we have to pay our staff more, we have to pay our landlords more, shouldn't we be getting higher rates? 
uh, but because of the fairly negative attitude towards the claimant PI industry, which there seems to have been in recent years, they were given pretty short shrift. But finally, of course, we get Sir Stephen Stewart and his working party reviewing hourly rates, and they um, up overhaul them and update them quite substantially um, this um, uh, uh, last summer. Um, and what we now suddenly see are the hourly rates are beginning to be taken seriously again across the board. And we're particularly beginning to see hourly rates uh, um, and guideline levels being applied in commercial cases, um, which does come as a pretty rude shock, I think, particularly to firms who are you know, in or, or at the threshold of the magic circle. Um, because you know, even um, the rates as updated really do seem to be an awfully long way from what the magic circle and, 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 and their close competitors are actually charging. Um, and so you know, one is beginning to see judgments coming through where the rates of commercial solicitors are being reduced very substantially. So, I, I mean, certainly in my experience, it's unusual to see partners um, I mean, in, in the top city law firms charging significantly less than £600 an hour. Um, it's perfectly routine to see seven or £800 an hour. And some of the American firms in particular, you may see figures of £900 an hour. Sometimes even uh, it's commonly uh, if you're actually using New York firms and with a dollar exchange rate, some of those are even clearing £1,000 an hour once it's converted to sterling. But the guideline hourly rate, even as updated, um, is, is much less than that. It's 512, I think. I'd be corrected if I'm wrong. I stupidly didn't have them in front of me. Um, but on any view, we're talking about um, quite significant, um, you know, very significant deductions. And there's been a recent decision of the Court of Appeal in a competition case, Samsung, uh, involving Samsung and LG, uh, you know, wrangling about um, uh, um, the, 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 the market in which they're both sort of so well known, um, in which the Court of Appeal has said quite clearly that if you want more than, more than guideline rates, even in a sort of heavy commercial case, uh, you're going to need to make a strong case for it. And I suspect that will come as a fairly rude shock. Uh, um, to um, um, uh, commercial clients, um, you know, who probably feel, well, we are sort of big and ugly enough to look after ourselves. We go out into the market, we negotiate hard. At the end of the negotiation, this is the rate that we've emerged with. We couldn't have got it any lower if we wanted to go to the solicitors of our choice. And yet they're still told, oh, no, it's going to be cut by 25% uh, because it's, it's above what a committee has, 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 has said um, is the reasonable rate between the parties. And um, you know, that, 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 as I say, I, I think it's going to be, it's going to come as quite startling um, to, uh, um, to, 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 to many in the, in, in, in the world of city litigation. Perhaps early days to work out what sort of factors will be taken into account uh, in exercising discretion to increase the rates. And we know from decisions so far that simply saying where a city firm or is a competition case or something like that is not enough. Um, what do you think will be um, relevant factors for people to be putting forward if they if they're seriously trying to make out a case for higher rates? Well, you're, you're quite right, and, and and just by way of background for people that don't follow this, the the the, the rates have specifically been said to include um, sort of heavy um, city type work. And in fact, one of the differences in the rates as they now are is that so far as commercial work is concerned, that they would still call the London One band. In fact, the guidance makes it clear that really this is a, a sort of um, floating band that applies to high quality commercial and city type work where, where, wherever it's performed. And conversely, and as was the case under the old rules, if you happen to be in the city of London, but you're not doing commercial work, you're not going to get London one band. So it's a band specifically really for heavier work uh, uh, um, with privately paying clients. Uh, um, and so it doesn't avail you to say, oh, well, you know, we fall into this category because that, that is the very category for which the guideline has been issued. Um, 
And just become, before I come on to actually answer your question about what criteria do I think you know, might be helpful, I think it probably is just worth saying there's something, um, you know, a, 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 a little bit about how the guideline rates appear to have been reached in the first place, because what there doesn't really seem to have been, and in fairness to the powers that be, it's not easy to do because there's a lack of transparency, but there doesn't really seem to have been a serious inquiry into what rates are actually available out there in the market. Um, and you can see why, you know, that might be the case in some areas, because in some areas there isn't really a market like personal injury, um, for example, uh, because clients are all acting on CFAs and or through, and they're not paying their own, they're, they're, they're not paying their own fees, so they don't negotiate. But in the commercial world, obviously there is a market out there, um, and you would think that in the commercial course and so on, there would be enough summary assessments uh, that there would at least be some data as to what 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 rates are actually out there in the market. But there doesn't seem to be any investigation into that, and what we've really got are um, hourly rates which seem to be based really on an updating of 2010 hourly rates with reference to inflation and various other factors. Um, uh, and the 2010 hourly rates, even those, weren't based on any sort of market um, examination either. And you think that, so, 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 you know, that they are divorced from what is actually out there in the market. And yet the purpose of detailed assessment isn't meant to be to allow an arbitrary tariff to what you can get between the parties, like a sort of variant of the fixed cost regime. It is, it is meant to be uh, um, a, a determination of what is a reasonable market rate. At least that is historically what detailed assessment has always been. So I think in some ways for you know the commercial world, and you know, I think we can all agree that there aren't going to be many uh, sort of newspapers or, or, or politicians out there sh shedding tears for people that can afford to instruct firms in the magic circle. But it does seem to me to be very arbitrary the, the, the rates which are, are being set down are rates which you know are not necessarily divorced between rates which you can actually go out and negotiate in the market. Even if you're a big blue chip business, you know, as I've said already, who's big and ugly enough to negotiate a pr pretty tough deal with your solicitor. You know, the rates may, may simply not be out there. So I think it is quite, 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 um, quite an unusual starting point. And what I would be interested to see actually is not so much what the Court of Appeal is saying in cases like Samsung, we all know the Court of Appeal can be a pretty policy-driven court. I think what may, may be interesting to see is what do the judges of first instance in the commercial court and the other business and property courts who actually see the, these things, you know, what, 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 will they, what will they say? Um, because you know, I think they may very well say, well, you know, I see some assessment schedules day in, day out, and rates of £500 an hour simply are not available in the market if you want to go to a top firm. And so the real question is, is the case worthy of a top firm? And if it is worthy of a top firm, it's not unreasonable to get what a top firm charges. And I think it's probably right to say that the, 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 the kind of revisitation of guideline rates and, and, and the, the final sort of crumbling of the dam, which had held the 2010 ones in, in place, partly did come because it was increasingly common for judges in the business and property courts. The, the, you know, they went from a process, which I've alluded to already, of just quietly ignoring them, so come 2019, 2020, there were a series of cases where judges actually said these rates are positively unhelpful. They're completely, they, they completely fail to reflect the market. Um, and we had Judge Hodge, for example, the commercial judge in Manchester, just applying a 35% uplift. So I think it's possible that there may be some pushback against these rates in commercial cases from the judges of first instance if they're persuaded they're simply out of sync with what's out there in the market. And of course, the current high inflation is something that might be used as a smokescreen you know, to allow them to, to start departing um, from the rates, you know, even before they're formally revised. So that's the, that's the starting point. I, I, I think, however, you know, unless until that process starts happening, then as you've rightly said, Jeremy, you can't just say, oh, oh it's a you know, commercial case, blue chip, we're Herbert Smith or whoever we may be 
know, this is what we charge. I think you are going to have to have a sort of rather granular process of saying, you know, these are the factors that make it, you know, exceptional even as compared to commercial litigation. Obviously, you can continue to make the point that these are guidelines for summary assessment. So they're the sort of rates that would be allowed um, after, I mean, in general, sort of non-heavy applications in the commercial court on a Friday. So one can reasonably say, well, yeah, um, but in cases um, which are very document heavy, um, which go to trial, which go to wrong trials, uh, um, there is um, a facility for there to be you know, some significant uplift for, for care and conduct, particularly at the, at the grade A and perhaps grade B um, end. Um, and, and, you know, that's just a variant of the arguments that personal injury solicitors, as I've said already, are, have been really familiar with for more than a decade. They're essentially singing for your supper to say that this is what justifies, you know, a higher than guideline rate. And the commercial world has been rather insulated from that. But I think you know, for inter-parties assessment, they're probably going to have to start singing for their supper to some extent as well. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 thank you, Ben. I, I, I agree with that. I think perhaps it was probably inevitable when these rates were introduced that what I think is a very sensible measure of taking geography out of it, certainly within London postcodes. Once you start looking at type of work rather than the postcode it's been it, 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 it's been uh, worked in, um, then it's more likely to be seen as a, as a rate for that a type of work, um, and and they will adhere more closely to um, to the guidelines. Um, but I mean, I, the, the example often given, obviously, is it has been an anomaly for many years that. Uh, you know, for uh, the chance, one of the magic circle firms is in E14. You know, it shares the same postcode as Poplar. But you know, it was always a nonsense to suggest it would be it would have the same hourly rates as a sort of a legal aid practice in you know Poplar High Street sort of stuff. Yes, um, right. Uh, and 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 that was that was really something of a given. Um, but some of these arguments remind me of the in the old days when you would turn up in the um, in the House of Lords for a for, for a taxation. You try and put all sorts of arguments about why your case was special, and they just turn around and say, "Yeah, but all our cases are special. Why, you know, why are you more special than everybody else that comes in?" And it's a little bit like, "Well, why are you more special than every other big commercial firm that does all big complex cases?" Um, yeah. And and in terms of the what might take it out of the norm, I think there's been some suggestion that if there's a significant international element that 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 may that that may be the case, but. I tend to see in those situations, it probably tends to go more to um, the, uh, the the length and breadth of the dramatist persona in the case. You know, they might, you know, where, where large international firms will start to use, um, you know, a, 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 um, connected offices in, you know, other European cities and the like, um, rather than it goes to which rate they should be applying. Um, so I think we are going to be... Um, there are going to be significant arguments about this. Uh, and the only other point I would make is that, that in terms of giving frontline judges more experience of, of and making them think about hourly rates, it's a bit of a, a, a shooting themselves in the foot when there's been decisions that specifically outlaw them from dealing with hourly rates on budget applications. Um, yes, right. Particularly uh, when you, you don't have to have a full hour's argument over it, do you? You know, 10 minutes yeah. is ample. One of the things I think that may also be interesting is, um, I, you know, I've, I've mostly been addressing from the perspective of the clients, but I suspect you know, it will impact the law firms as well, because what I suspect is the client's expectation will remain what clients in the commercial world have always been told 
you know, if you win, probably expect to get 70% of your costs back. And I think, yeah, and of course, historically, uh, you know, clients have accepted that. I don't think clients are going to suddenly accept that because of changes to the guideline hourly rates, they're going to live in a world where they only get 50% of their cost back. I think they're still expected to get 70% of their cost back. And I imagine you know, they will, in that case, start leaning on the firms of solicitors to say, well, you know, hang on a second, if the court has said your hourly rates are much too high, um, you know, why, you know, on any of you, you should share the pain. Um, or arguably, you should absorb the whole of the pain because, you know, you shouldn't have been charging me more than a reasonable rate. Um, um, and, you know, the courts held that it's, 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 it's not reasonable. Um, so, you know, I suspect that um, you know, unless, as I say, the commercial court judges really start um, saying, no, these rates are just not realistic for our sorts of work. You know, they, 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 they will potentially lead to tensions between solicitors and clients as well. And, and then, of course, you also you know, do lead to the perverse situation that the, the, the solicitors may actually be better off if their clients lose, because if their clients lose, obviously, they just have to pay. Because if their clients win and they only get 50% of their cost back, you, know, you, may have, you may have a client that makes a complaint that a client that lost wouldn't have made. It's, it's a sort of slightly through-the-looking-glass scenario. Indeed. Do, do the short-term scenario also be that... Uh, People will be revising their client care letters to say, "Well, seventy percent was a bit optimistic. We'll, um, in our new client letters, we'll we'll refer to fifty or sixty percent as a, as a safer uh, bet." Yes, indeed, and obviously very important given the the, the provision in the CPR that says that if um, if the uh, uh, um, for the cognoscenti is CPR forty six point nine three that that says if if uh, um, um, your rates are um, are an unusual nature or amount, and because of that, might not be recovered between the parties. They're presumed to be unreasonable. Um, so very important. And if guideline rates, you know, are um, going to start being extended into um, commercial um, the commercial world for solicitors, um, in uh, doing that sort of work in their retainer letters, they're probably to put into a sort of bold type somewhere. Uh, you know, a specific warning about hourly rates. You know, our hourly rates exceed the guideline rates. Um, you know, and because of that, there's a risk that they won't be fully recovered on detailed assessment. Some some sort of specific advice that draws attention to that. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, um, early rates of discussion could go on forever. Um, should we move on to uh, damages-based agreements and um, the continuing lack of progress on implementing um, Nick Bacon and Rachel Mulheron's hard work on some draft regulations to um, amend them? Yes, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever had Nick in to, to discuss these. There's a particular issue around the around that project with, with he and Rachel Mohair, which is say it's a great, great um, work that they did. But one issue I've never been able to bottom out is the extent to which you know, there was ever any sort of indication, whether formal or informal, that the Ministry of Justice actually had its heart um, in doing anything very much about this. Um, and certainly there's nothing to suggest that, that I've seen that it was ever you know, any sort of formally sponsored project. By the Ministry of Justice, rather than just something uh, which was, you know, as it were, came from practitioners that could see the difficulties that we're all aware of in the, these regulations. And you're certainly right to see that I uh, say that, that there hasn't been the slightest official encouragement, uh, so far as I can see, for for, um, for DBAs um, being made more user friendly. Um, and I, for a long time, um, had a fairly strong suspicion that the reality is is because there isn't a dedicated um, a, a, a dedicated commitment to them within Whitehall. I think the reality is that there are some stakeholders in Whitehall um, that um, have an access to justice um, uh, um, focus, and they obviously um, um, encourage um, anything which 
may um, in, involve innovation in how litigation is funded with a view to broadening the litigation base. But there is also obviously also powerful stakeholders within Whitehall um, that don't uh, want to do things that actually make it easier to businesses. Um, um, and um, one of the interesting things, and again, this, which I, I'm going to say this, you know, hopefully just a demonstrate, I'm not merely um, engaging in sort of school talk in, in, in saying I have these suspicions, but I think there are substantive indications that you can see where the, 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 you know, there is a debate within Whitehall that's occurring under wraps, is that when um, the um, competition legislation was amended to introduce opt-out um, collective actions in the CAT, um, at, um, at a relatively late stage, um, an amendment was slipped in to say that DBAs are unlawful in such proceedings. Mm. So, you know, you had, you know, you, 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 you had sort of robbing people to pay Paul, you know, on one side of the government was, was pulling to make collective proceedings easier. And then the other side sort of slipped in amendments saying, well, you can't do this by DBA. And I think that's so bizarre. I mean, DBAs are allowed for all other civil work. Um, the other, the things they're not allowed for, things that are, you know, some things they don't work would work on crime because there aren't any damages. They, they would work on family, but they're not allowed in family um, you know, because they would undermine the sort of hypothesis on which family cases work, um, that you're given enough money to, to, you know, to finance your future. And if you've got an alienated to your solicitors, um, then it doesn't, you know, the, the system collapses. Um, but, you know, obviously an opt-out collective action would be a classic big money claim where, which would be perfect to the DBA and they outlawed them. Mm. And I think that actually does show you very clearly there is a faction within Whitehall that does not welcome, um, you, know, uh, um, um, you know, a new instrument that essentially allows lawyers to speculate on the outcome of litigation. And obviously in some cases potentially get very large returns. So, you know, I don't, so for my part, I don't think there's any settled appetite at all that has been manifested publicly to make the DBA regulators better than they are. Um, and it's probably as a result of that that you are beginning to see like some court hearings, like the Court of Appeals decision in Zuberi and Lex Law at the beginning of last year, you know, which are now beginning to take a, a pretty sort of, you know, tighten your belt um, and, 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 and take out your machete and start, you know, trying to clear away some of the undergrowth, which is holding these agreements back by having some pretty strange interpretations that nonetheless, you know, are beginning to make the regulations look more workable. Uh, and of course, there's a recent uh, case where we don't know the judgment, we do know the result in which you were involved um, in, in relation to DBAs attempting to, um, to, to bite on what you'd preserved rather than what you'd obtained, if you like, if I can yes. put it that way. I mean, it's an interesting, it was an interesting case, as you say, um, the, the first instance, um, Mr. Justice Zaccaroli, who, for those who don't know him, he's an absolutely fantastic judge. He, um, he um, just held that, um, that you couldn't have a DBA that worked on preservation. But interestingly, at that stage, the argument was simply that the, uh, it was conceded the primary legislation would encompass that, but it was argued that the regulations didn't. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously I'm not trying to mitigate my lack of success, but I mean, since the regulations specifically and expressly uh, refer to um, the, the, the only permitted payment being a portion of the damages which are, the damages which are recovered, it was a rather difficult argument to say that the regulations, um, you know, did allow preservation. But when we got to the Court of Appeal, um, the argument went further because the concession of the primary legislation um, permitted um, the, uh, dependent DBAs was withdrawn. Um, and um, I think it's entirely possible the Court of Appeal will say the primary legislation doesn't in fact allow this either. Um, and, and again, the way the primary legislation works, it does address recoveries. 
And it certainly is right to say one would think that you can see that the, now although in, in practice a DBA would work um, perfectly effectively with the preservation, then you do have to concede that you know it's difficult, it's difficult to imagine that there wouldn't be a fairly profound difference in the way that DBAs were regulated if they accompanied accompanied preservations as well. Because you know, to take an extreme example, I mean, what, 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 what happens if you do have the sort of crazy, sort of unreal claim? Where you know somebody sues you for ten million pounds, it was never realistic. Uh, um, you know, but and they and 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 and, and they end up getting you, the case ends up being dismissed altogether. I mean, do, do you as a solicitor you know, at that point turn around to your client and say, "Oh, I can have thirty percent of ten million pounds"? I mean, for that the argument would be, "Well, yes, if that was what the client was stupid enough to contract for, yes, you can." <laughs> but you can well see that you know it's, a, it's something that would need to be regulated differently from a claimant setter, where you know there actually will be a pot of money that moves from A to B um, and B solicitor says I'm entitled to intercept a proportion of, of that which has come into your hands. So it is a, it is a rather different scenario than where, you know, you hold an, you, you know, you're simply attacked for some of money which may or may not have been a, a, a real world risk um, at the point the attack took place. Or maybe, you know, it was a real world risk to go back to my 10 million example. It might've been a real world risk as to 500,000 but not a real a real world risk as to 9.5 million, you know. And, and again, you know, how do you, you know, how, how do you go about about um, you know, ensuring that um, the remuneration is connected to that, which there actually was a risk of losing? Uh, it, it, it does, you know. You can see the difference within. You can certainly see the argument that within the present um, regulatory setup, um, it, it just isn't something which the regulations anticipate whatsoever. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but it's a real concern, though, isn't it? Because if you, it, it, I mean, you, sorry, there are real life situations, and you've obviously just come across one where you know there's a tangible, there's a tangible benefit in something being preserved. There's also a tangible benefit in something being mitigated to you know to to, to a level that almost feels like a wig to, uh, to, to 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 somebody who's on the hook for uh, a lot of money. Um, I mean, I assume there's nothing wrong with 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 a CFA that. That, that, no, that, I mean, the its definition of win or success in 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 that, in that way. Um, so, I, I, speaking personally, I'm probably not looking at it carefully enough, but uh, I don't see why it should, regulation shouldn't cover that. But there doesn't seem to be much of a, as we've discussed, much of an appetite to um, really do the hard yards and grapple with it and decide what they are going to do about uh, DBAs. Yeah, I, I think it's right also to say that um, you know when the legislation was introduced, no one applied their minds to uh, preservation at all. Like if you look back at Jackson, you look back at the sort of explanatory notes and memoranda, you look at the parliamentary debates, it just wasn't didn't really occur to anyone. Um, and I suspect it's also partly because there probably was a pressure within the markets when it came to bringing claims to allow um, you know solicitors to skin in the game, as it were. Um, and the interesting thing is, I think on the claimant side, they are—I think they—they are often popular with the client base um, and the solicitors. I mean, for solicitors, the potential appeal is obvious. You know, it may lead to, you know, in big money cases, maybe very large returns. Um, but the appeal to clients is always is also very considerable because it, and I think the way clients see it, it's a very simple thing to understand. You know, I'm essentially getting into a joint venture with my solicitor. The solicitor is taking all of the risks. Um, uh, I mean, in very many cases, the, 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 um, what DBAs, are, I, I think, are, are leading to in the commercial world is cases being pursued 
that probably wouldn't wouldn't have been pursued if DBAs didn't exist. Um, so you're you know often seeing. Um, I mean, there are a lot of DBAs that, that seem to be coming into existence around um, alleged um, uh, sort of false prospectuses and share dealings, for example. Now you're often getting investors you know who probably wouldn't bother if they um, had to pay their solicitors in conventional ways. But if a firm of solicitors comes to them and says, I think there's a case here, you know, we'll take all the risk, we'll finance it, we'll finance the disbursements. Um, but if you lose, you know, you pay us 40%. Sorry, if you win, you pay us 40%. That's quite appealing to clients. You know, it enables them to litigate risk-free. It's, it's very easy to understand. Um, you know, if the litigation succeeds, they're bound to be the net providers because if the solicitor is taking 40% or whatever, they get 60% or whatever. Um, and, um, and obviously the solicitors have a massive incentive. So it's very popular, I think, with, with, with a certain type of client. Uh, um, uh, um, so, you know, I think there probably was, was real pressure from the claimant market to introduce these things. I just don't think there was equivalent pressure from the defendant side and it just never got talked about. Hmm. Um, moving on then to um, group litigation. Um, a couple of cases to look at here. Um, the Supreme Court judgment in Lloyd and Google is obviously... Uh, a starter for that. Yes, no, this is a, this, no, I've mentioned already opt-out collective proceedings in the CAT. I mean, for years, it's been um, acknowledged to be a, a, by many, to be a fault in the English civil justice system, but we don't have any real means of seeking collective address on an opt-out basis. And by opt-out, just for those who aren't sort of familiar with the jargon. But obviously we've always, well, since the CPR, we've had group litigation. And in fact, even before the CPR, there was essentially judge-invented group litigation. But group litigation is an opt-in process. You have to, the claimants have to be identified, they have to put their names on a claim form, they have to be entered into a group register. Um, and as anyone who deals with these cases will know, you know, even if it's something which is all over the front of the tabloid press, something like the diesel emission scandals and such like, you're only get a tiny proportion of claimants that ever come forward. Um, so it's a tremendous interest both to the market um, and all, but also to those uh, who you know, describe themselves, if you'll forgive the slightly ugly jargon, as consumer champions, to allow some mechanism which actually allows big business to be held to account in a way that doesn't require people to come out of the woodwork. And essentially, you know, to be able to put out an action that says, we have identified that there has been a data leak where you know, Corporation X, uh, you know, whilst you know, ostensibly marketing a nice free game for you to play through your iPhone, you know, has actually, you know, quietly... Um, given itself rights that you click without bothering to read to sort of harvest all of your data uh, um, and, and, and to exploit it. Um, um, you know, the attraction for just being able to firm a solicitor say, we've identified this, we claim that we find a person is willing to act as class representative, and, you know, we will pursue this for the world at large, we'll get a fund of damages, and we'll distribute, distribute it. That's the, that, that's the opt-out. It's, 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 it obviously involves far huger sums because it's everyone, not just those that come forward. Um, and in terms of, 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 of the, the sort of initial, um, uh, um, sort of overcoming the initial inertia to get a piece of litigation going, I mean, it's a much easier process because you don't have a book building exercise. You don't need to go out there and find claimants. And you don't have the sort of all the bureaucracy of vetting claimants, seeing if they can be put onto the group register. You know, do they meet criteria? Updating the group register, putting people on, taking people off, cut-off dates. So all of that is is is, is swept away. So it's, it's potentially very appealing. And in other common law jurisdictions, um, they're either through legislation or on a judge-made process or a mix of both. They, um, these arrangements you know have come into existence. 
Now, it's been talked about for years in the UK. Um, the government said um, that it, it, it doesn't support um, um, a, a sort of across the board process, but it legislates competition credits, and that's the opt-out collective action, the CAT. Now, the interesting thing about Google, uh, Lloyd and Google, is Mr. Lloyd's representatives identified um, the much older, goes back to Victorian times regime for representative actions. And the sort of classic traditional way in which you might have a representative action is if everyone has got the same interest and you've got a readily defined class like a group of shareholders, for example, you might find one shareholder to act as the representative and that shareholder will bring the claim. Um, and but at the end of the claim, if the claim succeeds or fails, it's binding on other members of, 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 of the class. Um, but you know, historically, that was used for you know relatively small, closely defined classes like a group of shareholders um, or, or something of that sort. And Google's uh, Lloyd, well, Lloyd's idea was to say that in terms of of, 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 um, of the data breach claim against Google, um, that you could do the same thing for a, a far far larger and um, less readily identifiable class, like people that use iPhones or whatever it might be, um, and. Um, you know, they failed at first instance, they won in the Court of Appeal and they lost in the Supreme Court. And they lost to the Supreme Court really on, on sort of technical grounds relating to the nature of the tort. Um, but what is quite interesting is, 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 is the, and, and I think it's probably, you know, it, to, to, to some extent been, been passed over by people that don't take a close interest, you just tend to look at the outcome and oh, the, the case failed. But actually, in the course of reaching the outcome, the Supreme Court did actually make some very encouraging noises mm. about you know, the importance of access to justice and consumer redress, um, and you know the potential um, the the potential to use Rule 19, the representative action, you know, to bring um, opt-out claims if the right sort of case could be identified where you did have a clear class with a clear interest, where the remedy for all of them was the same. And again, that, this is part of the concern, it was about the remedies. You know, in the Google cases, the argument was that different claimants would have different, would have different remedies, different measures of recoveries. Um, and Google um, um, attacked that. Lloyd tries to answer it by saying, well, I can just go to the lowest common denominator to limit the cases, either the claims and everyone to, to, to the lowest level. The Supreme Court held that doesn't work. But they certainly held out the um, opportunity that it would work in cases where generally everybody does have um, the same loss. Um, which in you know quite a lot of consumer claims um, you know might well be the position. So it actually does hold out some hope for this. But from the perspective of, 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 of you know the sort of people that are interested in listening to um, a podcast or whatever it might be on costs, what I think um, is um, and, and and this is just just given some some extremely cursory attention to Google because it wasn't part of Google's challenge. But if if Google actually you know, counterintuitively opens the way, in fact, to some of these cases proceeding. It does, however, then give rise to some very, very difficult questions about how do you involve what you, in the 21st century, you tend to need to involve to bring these cases, which is things like, you know, litigation funding and arrangements like DBAs and CFAs. Because the essential... Sorry, I was just going to say that that seems to me part of the problem, which is in principle, um, it's quite simple to think of a solution where uh, using the representative procedure you get a declaration that something has been you know some right has been infringed but then you need the second stage to establish the damages in, in this situation and the problem with, with funding arrangements nobody's going to fund you through the first stage which is 
perhaps quite an expensive stage, um, unless they can be guaranteed a recovery. And, and the problem is... Right. You, they I think the is here, and I think, to me, the brick wall you potentially run into is it's obviously in the very nature of an, of an opt-out scheme um, that um, the individual claimants themselves, you know, so I say claimants, I actually mean the members of the class, they're not claimants, that's the whole mm. point. They obviously have no relationship whatsoever mm. with the solicitors or the funders or the AT insurers, whoever it may be. Um, but the solicitors and the funders and the AT insurers, I mean, the, you know, how, how do they get remunerated? Well, in terms of, of the solicitors' basic charges and the basic disbursements, so you obviously, if you win, you'll get them or, or most of them back from the other side in the usual way. But what you obviously can't get, post-Jackson, you obviously can't get, if the solicitors are on CFAs, you can't get their success fee. Um, DBAs don't work at all because the, the DBA obviously takes a percentage of the damages, but the only party to the DBA will be the class representative. Now, in most of these cases, if they're data breach claims, for example, the, the individual damages, bets, you know, they might be a thousand pounds, they might be less, they might be more. But so under the DBA, um, under DBA regulations, you're limited to taking 50% of the damages. The, the only person the solicitor has a contract with is the class representative. So they get 50% of a thousand pounds. Well, you know, obviously that, that is hopeless. And litigation funders, they have precisely yeah. the same problem. You, know, yeah. you, you obviously, the class representative has got no power to contract to agree that all of the other members of the class, when they come out of the woodwork and say, yes, please, I'll take my thousand pounds, to say that they have to, you know, give up 30, 40% of it, whatever it may be, to the litigation funder. So again, you know, you have the, it's a privity of contract issue. There's, you know, everything that, and it's a paradox, everything that makes it attractive is its, is its opt-out nature, but the opt-out nature makes it very um, uh, problematic um, for um, funders, um, whether they be the lawyers through DBAs or CFAs, or if they be external financial institutions through litigation funding arrangements, to, to sort of, you know, to work out a mechanism by which they can reliably get um, you know, a reasonable share of the money in order to, to compensate them for the risk they've taken and the funds in which they've advanced. Yeah. Now, now, there are particular arguments. I mean, in the US, uh, for um, example, um, you know, there, there's, it, there's sort of fairly developed principles uh, um, that, um, uh, um, that uh, um, you know, ch charges can actually be deducted out, of, deducted out of the damages before they're distributed to the class. Um, and in other countries, you get that through legislation. For example, in Australia, there's, there, 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 um, there are sort of detailed rules of court and so on which deal with these issues. Uh, and in our country, we have that in the CAT. The CAT um, has come up. Um, the CAT rules have a, have a mechanism by which um, all the funding charges, you can claim them out of any damages which are undistributed. And, that, and, you know, and, and they can be paid out of that before the undistributed damages are then uh, uh, um, I don't need to go into the detail, but in essence, if you go to trial and lose unclaimed damages, go to charity. Um, if you settle, um, you can actually say that unclaimed damages go back to the defendant. That's why there's a huge incentive on defendants to settle for these cases. But that, that, that all results from primary legislation. So you've got none of that in part 19. So the, 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 the situation that we are left in um, is that, um, in fact, as I've said, counterintuitively, uh, Lloyd and Google actually encourages some of these cases to go forward. Um, the access to justice um, arguments, which the Supreme Court endorses in Lloyd and Google, are very strong. But you then run into the fact that you are ultimately trying to shoehorn a sort of a slightly ramshackle 19th century procedure, which has clearly been devised for a completely different sort of litigation, okay, into an opt-out collective action, which only works if you've got sort of third parties willing to put up money and take risks. 
Um, and then the question is, but how on earth do you get those third parties to get a reasonable return out of the litigation at the end of the case? And the reality is, you know, you can see routes to judge-made law that would answer that. But, you know, the, the difficulty then comes is, yeah, but, you know, somebody's got to put their heads above the parapet and ask the judges to make that law. You know, in circumstances where, you know, I think everybody involved would have to acknowledge there's a risk. The judge would say, well, no, it's just a step too far. You know, this is a great idea, but you need legislation. Um, and, you know, if the judges are only willing to answer that at the end of the case, you know, you have potentially got funders who are millions and millions, risking millions and millions of pounds, not just with the conventional risk that we might lose, but with the added risk that we might win and still get absolutely nothing or close to it. So, you know, again, one of the, I think, sort of $64 million questions, maybe literally $64 million questions <laughs> in these cases is, you know, will, you, will the courts agree, you know, maybe a bit like in a better application in, in, a, in, in a trust case where the trustees apply for sort of um, um, their um, for a regulation, their cost recovery at the beginning of the litigation? Will the court be willing to say perhaps motivated by the access of justice imperative? Okay, you know, as part of the question as to do we let this representative action proceed, we will also, as part of that, you know, um, um, have a preemptive decision as to whether there is any legal mechanism by which funders can get a share at the end. Um, and, you know, it might be that that question can be answered at a cost of hundreds of thousands of pounds rather than millions of pounds, and there will be a funder who is willing to explore it. Um, but, you know, that at the moment seems to me what is going to be the the the, the, the um, the impediment to this, um, you know, as I say, extremely imaginative attempt to, to, to create a sort of common law collective action, it, it will actually won't be at the dog end, it will be at the tail end, it will be, you know, how do you get the funding and such like to operate when it is an opt-out procedure? Yeah. Well, looking though at the CAT, there was a decision in uh, of the CAT in the um, FX litigation case which um did that surprise you or contain much of, of interest well, you think generally the the fx case was you know ultimately turned on the on the competition law aspects you know they, 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 they and um it was an unusual case in that there wasn't an argument as to whether it should be certified there was an argument about whether it should be opt-in or opt-out and if it's opt-in in i mean it's a crude way of putting it but that is my it's broadly analogous to a to a group action in the courts so you have the book building exercise and all that that other sort of um, sort of red tape and and and, and inertia um, that needs to be overcome before you get off the ground. And as I understand it, I'm involved in the case. As, but as I understand it, both both um, um, potential class representatives um, have said no. I mean, if it's opt in, it just won't work. Uh, um, so I mean, you know, and and the tribunal held for competition law reasons, it's more suitable to be an opt in claim. I understand that's going to be subject to appeal. Um, I think from our, from our perspective, um, as again, you know, for people watching this, listening to it, interesting costs and funding, the more interesting aspect isn't so much the, 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 the non-certification of the opt-out, but it is it's the first case to come to court where you've got two rival class representatives. You've got O'Higgins uh, uh, and you've got Evans. O'Higgins gets in first, Evans gets in second. Um, you know, both got very, very competent legal teams. No one is seriously suggesting um, you know that one side is 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 sort of inept, and the other side is 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 um, you know, is skillful. They're both um, they're both formidable um, um, you know, um, formidable legal teams on both sides. You know how do you choose between them? And um, you know I, I represented the the, the 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 Evans claim, which the tribunal said, well, if if we had, had to certify, if we had certified one of them, it's Mr. Evans would have certified. Uh, you know, so I mean, it was obviously you know gratifying to win that. Um, it, it's fair to say that they said it was very close. 
But I mean, more to the point, and I, I, I hope I, you know, I'm not saying anything that would upset either people on, on, on my team or on indeed the O'Higgins team on the other side. Um, I, I suspect they would sort of wearily nod their heads in agreement. You know, you want to have the sense of, of, of you know, the old saw of the circular firing squad in that, you know, there were the defenders just sitting there neutrally whilst you had two claimant camps, you know, each arguing that they were the better um, um, and probably spending as much on that argument um, um, as needed to be spent in order on, on, the, on the separate freestanding certification arguments where the defendants were active. You know, so, I mean, essentially the case split into two and 50% of the case was, was two rival claimant camps attacking each other. Now, in the course of that attack, um, you know, there was a great deal of focus on, on you know, the relative funding position. Um, and in fact, I think the tribunal essentially held, well, both sides had good funding packages. You could favour, um, you could make points in, in, in favour of one favour of the other. They were very clear, um, I think, that you can't just go off and you know, buy £100 million pounds of ATE uh, um, and, and thereby win because your opponent's only got £10 million. You know, you can't just buy it. Um, uh, um, it's a question, you know, it's, it's not just, uh, it's about quality, it's about need. You know, you don't buy 100 million if you only need 35 million. But there was a lot of attention on this. Um, uh, um, um, and, uh, you know, again, it was interesting to see. And it was, uh, and again, you know, almost this, this sense of the circular firing squad, because you know, obviously, you know, on both sides, AT insurers came in, they offered their service to, uh, services to one of the camps. But it was all also perfectly clear that if, if one of the camps started and the other one succeeded, you know, the AT insurers who had initially supported the other camp would have been only too willing to come over to the other and start saying, well, if you need some top-up cover, you know, you know, we're available in the market. So it's a very curious, um, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a curious scenario. It does, um, I think, give rise to difficulties. One assumes that in a lot of cases, it will essentially become self-solving because the commercial incentive on the sides of the sort of pool resources you know, may often prevail um, over, you know, having the, um, having the fight. Um, but clearly, it won't always prevail because it didn't prevail in, 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 in the FX case. Mm. Can I ask you a technical question in relation to that question of which was the better person to allow to proceed? Um, they looked at costs and they looked at um, liability for adverse costs. And, and I'm just reading, I think it's my summary rather than the quote. Um, it was said... If the representative has proper provision for payment of the proposed defendant's costs, the representative should not consider themselves at risk of um, personally having to satisfy a costs order unless there was misconduct or something like that. Um, and they said the risk of such an order would have a chilling effect on the collective proceedings regime. Has the indemnity principle been disapplied in this area? I mean, I appreciate that the, the members of the group, if you like, other than the representative, um, can't be made liable for costs under the, the rules. Yes. But in the situation of the representative, surely the representative has to be at least um, notionally liable for costs for the indemnity principle to be satisfied, or has that also been disapplied? And I haven't. No, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that that is something um, where the tribunal was shooting from its hip rather than it was really, um, you know, anybody um, had really sort of canvassed the issue. I, I think that, I mean, I, I, from memory, Marcus Smith, uh, Mr. Justice Marcus Smith, the president. Um, of, of that particular tribunal um, did, you know, uh, canvass that during argument, but it wasn't really picked up on. Um, and obviously the commercial expectation in these cases is that the funders pay or, or the AT insurers pay. Um, but I think the proposition that the cost, and, and of course he was talking about adverse costs, not liability for end costs. Hmm. Um, but I, I think the proposition that the cost representative isn't at least theoretically liable for adverse costs, um, you know, is a difficult one, not least because as you say, the rules, 
essentially say that they are, it's the other members of the class that aren't. Um, um, the expectation is they're indemnified and they would be extremely badly advised not to be indemnified, uh, you know, given the level of cost in these cases, but they are themselves on the hook. And, um, um, but, and certainly for their own costs, um, uh, certainly my understanding the indemnity principle still applies. So they do have to be theoretically liable to pay um, the, um, the solicitors and indeed the funders. But unsurprisingly, um, the arrangements um, if the class representative is well advised, will usually be non-recourse in nature, so that although they are um, liable to pay, for example, the solicitor under the CFA, the solicitor undertakes that the only you know, entities to which they will look for payment is either the funder yeah. or the opposing party. So, you, uh, um, and similarly with the litigation funding, obviously the litigation funding will commonly um, exp expressly provide that the only source from which the funder can take its share will be the un undistributed compensation, which, as I say, is the way the CAT and rules anticipate it will work. Funding yeah. will be will be discharged out of undistributed damages. Yeah. Andy, any thoughts on any of this? Uh, I'm, no, I'm really grateful for the to, to, to that sort of you know re review. Um, and uh, I mean, it, uh, it's troubled me always really about uh, about any form of opt out that. Um, Creates even even a, a, a an even larger distance between the client and any type of control over costs. I mean, to be frank, in group actions, it's pretty illusory anyway most of the time. Um, but but costs are costs seem to be you know self generating, and um, there doesn't appear to be a, a a lot of appetite in the CAT to control costs in any form of budgetary sense as they go along potentially other than at a very high level. But perhaps we're too early in some of these certified cases to know actually how that will work out. So, yeah. uh, yes, I mean, of course, because because these, these opt-out um, actions were all um, put on hold pending Merrick's and MasterCard in the Supreme Court, you know, they are really only just beginning to get running. Um, you. you know, obviously in that there are a lot of them. And certainly um, I think they're going to give rise to lots of issues. I mean, I said that I act for Mr. Evans in FX, obviously, um, the, the two unsuccessful um, applicants, so Higgins and Evans, are now facing uh, claims for the bank's costs. Um, and, you know, every single bank has gone off to its own city firm with its own council team. Um, and as a result of that, a, a five-day hearing, interlocutory hearing, for which um, I think nearly half of it was given over to the carriage issue between O'Higgins and Evans, on which the banks were neutral, where the banks served no evidence of their own, called, called no expert evidence of their own, so they took in, their response was entirely limited to legal submissions and um, picking apart the um, claimants' um, evidence um, rather than anything. So I, I think they cost £15 million. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you know, obviously there are going to be in due course huge arguments about duplication and such like. Um, you know, if, if, if no one suggests there was any conflict of interest between the banks, now obviously they're each entitled to go up and get their own firm of solicitors. But it's an unsacrifice to say, you know, just because you're entitled to your own firm of solicitors, that means that you know, every firm can be there active at the hearing, you know, with its own counsel team. Obviously, very serious arguments that, that, that you know, where there is no conflict of interest, you know, you know, just as you would in a group action, you have a lead solicitor and with a single counsel team. Um, you know, so I suspect, it's, you know, the, 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 this world is going to give rise to some exotic, all sorts of exotic in, uh, um, um, arguments about funding. So, but we're also going to have like common or guards and detailed assessment questions exactly. like duplication, but just on a canvas which is infinitely larger than canvases which we've previously seen. 
you know, you know, simply because of the massive scale of these cases and the stakes for, 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 for businesses. Yes. And you can see why businesses want to stop them. I mean, as I've said, if they get off the ground, the incentive for businesses, businesses to settle, because if they settle, they keep the undistributed damages. And, and I mean, I'm told that in, from, from experiences in the US and Canada, I mean, it's truly remarkable if 50% of the damages get distributed. And in many of these cases, it's sort of five or 10%. So if, if, if you have a business that knows, well, if it settles, I'm potentially getting 90% of my money back. Now, I mean, you know, it's a huge, huge incentive on them to settle. So you can see quite what they actually want to do is they want to strangle these cases in their grave by opposing certification. Because, you know, once you've got certified, um, you know, the, 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 the commercial pressure on the business to settle is huge. Perhaps people start setting up firms to go around uh, advertising for people to claim their unclaimed damages. A share of those. <laughs> well, yes. As we've seen, there's now an entire industry in the personal injury world that goes around attacking what personal injury solicitors have deducted as success fees. Now, yeah. I don't think it's fanciful to suppose that there might be, you know, that, that you know there might be other areas where that business model gets built on. I, you know, it would be unwise to think to think it would just be the poor personal injury solicitors that are subjected to these uh, shakedowns, um, yeah. you know, forever. I suspect, you know, it may very well be. That, 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 that lawyers and funders, you know, do potentially face, um, you know, similar questions. And you do get, because I mean, like, obviously, I think notoriously in the post office litigation, the postmasters, I think they lost, and mistresses, they lost 85% of their compensation. Um, now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that's because the funders were unreasonable. I don't know the details of it at all. And clearly, it was a very risky case. Um, but again, I think it also exposes something that is very wrong in our system at the moment. You know, I mean, I think it's universally regarded that the post office, you know, behaved disgracefully in that case. And then I don't just mean in, you know, in the in, in the events that gave rise to this, but in the litigation itself, yeah. they're running it incredibly aggressively. Um, um, you, know, you know, taking every conceivable every conceivable delaying tactic. That no doubt is why instead of the usual sort of 30, 40 percent deduction from damages, there was an 85 percent deduction. Very troubling that the court doesn't have any power to require, you know, where where you as an unreasonable opponent cause your your in your impecunious um, um, claimants funding costs to to increase very substantially. That there is literally nothing um, uh, by which um, you can do as a court to, to to force them to contribute. You know, unless it can be said, and this would be entirely new law, that you know, may not be able to recover these charges as part of the cost order, but can you recover them as part of the damages? That, I think, is yeah. uh, not an issue which has yet been argued. No, no. Very but difficult to imagine the courts are suddenly going to say, oh, well, you know, we may have stopped you recovering, recovering successes and such like as damages, uh, as costs, but now you can have them as damages instead. Um, but then, you know, to show the lack of connected thinking um, in, in, in these cases, for many years, you know, people listening to this, they might sort of vaguely remember their, their first term of contract. At law school, and there, remember, there was a famous old, old case or notorious old case called the Lees Bosch Dredger that said that, that you know if you can't if 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 your losses are are are, um, are increased because you're, you're because you're too you don't have the means of mitigation, um, that's too remote. You can't recover it. And in 2003, the House of Lords overruled that case and said, no, no. I mean, you know, the justice, you know, if it's foreseeable that people who lack means, you know, may have larger losses than people that can immediately go out into the market and and and, and you know, sort of buy in services that 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 protect them against, you know, um, the position the tort has caused them. Um, you know, of course they should be able to recover it. So, you know, in that area, you've got suddenly impecunious people. They can recover the extra losses which they're caused. 
um, and on the damages side, uh, at the same time, a few years later, on the cost side, we, you know, we take that away from them. Yes. Yes, I mean, it, it, yeah, exactly. I mean, there are, stretching it a bit, but I mean, there are some sort of funding costs, including pre-judgment interest, that you, you, you can get either as costs or damages, you know. Yeah, quite. That is true. Pre-judgment right. interest, of course, is... is, is, is um, um, uh, um, you know, is 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 a significant factor. Uh, again, again, there's a mystery to that uh, um, for me as well. In that the business and property courts routinely awarded. Yes. So you know, you, you get your big blue chip companies who are the commercial courts customers. They they get their sort of interest at two percent above base or whatever it may be from the date they pay their solicitors. But if you represent a, a, a claimant um, in a PI case who's maybe taken out a disbursement funding loan, um, you try to get the interest back on that. <laughs> In my experience, the cost judges absolutely right far find a way not to award it. Exactly. And so you, 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 so you, you, you get the suggestion of poor Mrs. Jones, you know, with her, with her sort of broken leg after a car accident, you know, may lose thousands of pounds to her dis disbursement funder. Uh, whereas, um, you know, uh, whereas, you know, Barclays Bank PLC in the commercial court that, you know, which paid Herbert Smith a hundred thousand pounds, you know, six, six months ago, it, it gets interest on that. It's, it really is a very, very strange state of affairs. Exactly. Well, Ben, as usual, your incisive analysis reveals a series of paradoxes which apply in the way the law is administered today. Um, but thank you very much on behalf of Practico and all those who are going to watch this for participating in the discussion. It was, as ever, very, very interesting. Um, a piece of um, good news for those like me who used to enjoy a bacon sandwich in the city of London before these things went virtual um, is that uh, Practico is planning to revive the physical meeting um, somewhat later in the year, but I'm sure news about that will, will come out later. Um, on that note, um, thank you very much for, for, for joining us and it was a really interesting discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. Pleasure to see you both. Thanks, Jeremy.